If you have a Bible, uh, why don't you open with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 40. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke for the last several uh, weeks and months now. I'm going to jump right in this morning. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. So he's this religious, Jewish ruler of this uh, community center. Well-respected man, a man of the city. It says, falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And so Jesus went. Jesus went, and then the people, they pressed around him, because he has this kind of growing celebrity uh, thing happening right now. People are hearing about his miracles. They're seeing him cast out demons. They are hearing stories about him calming the storm with his disciples. They're hearing all of these things. They're seeing these things. And so everybody at this point is just gathering around Jesus, pressing in around Jesus. It says there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And so she came up behind Jesus and she touched just the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when everybody denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you. They're all pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And then when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before Jesus and declared in the presence of everybody why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And then Jesus looked at this woman who'd suffered for so long and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well, so go in peace. And while all this was happening, while Jesus was still speaking, to this woman, someone from the ruler's house, someone from Jairus' house, he came and said, it's too late. Your little girl's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, hearing this, he said, don't fear. Only believe. She will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping there. They were mourning for her. But he said, don't weep. She's not dead. She's asleep. And they laughed at him. They knew she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she gave up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And it says her parents were, were amazed. But he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. God, I pray that you would teach us this morning about your power, God, about your presence in our life, about your presence in this world, God, about your kingdom, God, about your timing. God, we trust you, we look to you. God, we thank you that you, that you know us completely and still love us and forgive us. And so we pray confidently in the name of Christ. Amen. So this is a powerful passage, obviously. This is actually the last. These, these two sort of interconnected, the stories are uh, the last two in a series of four. If you've been with us, you've been kind of tracking along with us. We saw this story of, of Jesus' power and of Jesus' authority, um, of him calming the storm with his disciples while they're on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. 
We saw last week his power and authority even over demons, and not just demons, but an army of demons that had possessed this man. And then here in these last two uh, interconnected stories, we see Jesus' power and authority over disease and even death. And this is all a part of, as we've said, Luke is building his case to answer this question, who is Jesus? Who is this man that we're dealing with? This question is woven throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's woven throughout the Gospels, period. And, and we see it in Luke both uh, implicitly and explicitly. So we'll see it with, his, uh, with, with all these various characters, including his disciples, who, while Jesus calmed the storm, they, looked, they marveled together and saying, Who is this guy? Even the, even the seas and the wind and the water obey him. We see Jesus even pushing this question directly, for example, as he talks to Peter in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 9, where he says, who do you say that I am? And here in chapter 8, we learn even more about who Jesus is uh, and about how Jesus works. And we see it primarily through the lens of these two key people, the sick woman and the desperate father. So let's look at this sick woman first. Her story is told in, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and Matthew and Mark, they, they tell this story, but they also give a little bit more insight on sort of what's happening inside this woman and her desperation. She speaks in Matthew and Mark, and they say, if, if, only, if only I could touch his garment. If I could just touch his garment. I don't even need to touch him. If I could just touch his clothes, then I'll be healed. And even here in Luke, though we never hear from this woman directly, we get a sense of her hopelessness and desperation. There in verse 43, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she couldn't be healed by anybody. This woman was likely somewhere between 25 years old and 55 years old. She'd suffered with this, this illness, this discharge of blood for 12 years almost certainly unmarried, unprotected, alone. She was physically and ceremonially, legally unclean. Leviticus 15 tells us that she would not have been permitted to um, go into the temple to worship. She would be forbidden from sharing uh, a meal with someone at the same table, even sharing a piece of furniture with someone else. She could not share a bed with anyone else. She was an outcast completely. She was contagious. She was viral. Her, her uncleanness would spread to whoever would be in contact with her. Many people would have been thinking at that time that she was in fact cursed by God, that we don't know what she did, but she must have done something to deserve this. She was a social pariah. She was a religious and spiritual and social outcast. This was, this was not only Jewish law, it was Jewish law, but, but Jewish superstition went several steps further. This is uh, terrible as we think about uh, the things that they put these women through. In, in his history, uh, his natural history, this ancient writer, Pliny the Elder, he would write this. He says, contact with the monthly flux of blood turns new wine sour. This is the way they thought about what was happening to this woman and others. It says it makes crops wither. It kills grass, it dries seeds in the garden, it causes fruit trees to fall down. It dims bright surfaces of mirrors. Do you see this nonsense? It dulls the edge of steel and gleam of ivory. It kills bees, it rusts iron and bronze. Dogs go mad and their bite becomes poisonous. This is in his natural history. 
And there were all these remedies for this condition. In the Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish religious text, it would list no less than 11 cures for this particular illness. Some were potions and some were simple superstitious folly and foolishness. For example, uh, one writer put it this way, an ancient writer in the Talmud, take of the gum of Alexandria and the weight of a small silver coin, of aluminum the same, of crocus the same, these are chemicals, metals, let them be bruised together and given them given to the woman in a wine. And if this doesn't cure her, well then set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone just come up behind her and scare her, saying, arise from this blood. That was the prescription. That's what the doctors would, would put her through. This is, this is a humiliating and torturous superstition and we know from context that this woman had likely tried them all right in mark 5 it says he makes clear she'd suffered so much under many physicians she'd she'd literally spent all she had and she was no better off but instead she grew worse this woman was desperate this woman was hopeless. This woman was at the absolute bottom. And in fact, she'd suffered as much from, from the cure as she had from the illness. All her attempts at self-help seemed to only worsen the situation. In Leviticus 15, as we said, this, this condition would make her ceremonially unclean. And anyone who was in contact with her, would they themselves, they would be unclean. She would contaminate you. She didn't keep her uncleanness in, but you near her, sharing a dish with her, touching her, you yourself would be made unclean. The writer says she was ostracized from normal society. She was barred from worship in the temple. She was broke. She was cut off from home, society, from religion. She was declining in health. She was at the absolute bottom. Anybody relate? And here, so this woman, the story goes, she is pushing through this crowd, right? I think I may have a picture. Yeah, she's, she's pushing through this crowd. She is contaminating everyone around her. She has the audacity to go, to go put her hands on the clothes of this celebrity rabbi, Jesus, Jewish ritual requirements forbade her to touch any holy thing, and yet she does just that, and that's what saves her. It says, immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body healed from her distress. Now, who does she think she is, right? Who does she think she is to have the audacity to do that? One writer says, this woman refuses to accept her lot in life. She doesn't take no for an answer, right? She pursues. And maybe a better question is not necessarily who does she think she is, but who does she think Jesus is? Who does she... But think about what the extent that she went to to get to Jesus. He's her only hope at this point, right? She's got nothing to lose. And she's got everything to gain. And yet her, her faith is not perfect, right? She didn't have all this together. She didn't study theology. She's got it all wrong, right? 
as she's thinking about Jesus, as she's thinking about her illness, as she's thinking about how to be saved from that illness, to be cured, to be healed, she's got it all wrong. This is, this is magic. This is superstition. One writer says this, this, these ideas expressed in the story of the woman's healing, they do not border on magic and superstition. They are the essence of Greco-Roman magical superstition. She doesn't have her theology right. She doesn't have all, her, all the answers. She doesn't really even know what she's doing. She, but she goes to Jesus. She knows that much, right? She goes, I've tried everything else. I'm broke. I'm sick. No, no one will touch me. I can't touch anyone by law. I can't have relationships. I can't have a normal job. I, I can't have this or that or the other thing. But all, all I can do is get to this man. It's my last and only hope. And it works. It works. He says in verse 48, daughter. She probably hadn't been spoken to like that, with that kind of tenderness and intimacy in a long time. She already touched him, contaminated him. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You're okay now. And, it's, and immediately she was okay. And then you have Jairus. Now, he is unlike this woman in almost every way, right? I mean, they couldn't be more different. Jairus was a rich man. She was a poor woman. Jairus was accepted. He was uh, one of the rulers of the synagogue. She was an outcast, ceremonially, socially unclean. Jairus had both his, his wife and servants with him, a daughter, too, and she was utterly and completely alone. They couldn't be more different. And yet they were both at the absolute bottom. They had nowhere to go. Both were desperate. Both were overwhelmed with the reality of their particular situation. One with nothing to lose. One about to lose everything that's most important to him. His little girl. His 12-year-old little girl is at home dying. He, whatever money he had, it wouldn't fix it. Whatever he tried to do, whatever, whatever religious practices told him to give to this girl, to do to this girl, to care for this girl, nothing worked. And so let's go see Jesus. Let's go see Jesus. Now notice in the story, it's Jairus who approaches Jesus first, right? That's how the story begins there in verse 40. That, that Jairus is there. He's, he's first in line, right? He approaches Jesus first and with a much more serious problem. His daughter's about to die. And while Jesus stops to interact with this woman who had been suffering for 12 years, his daughter died. That's the story. He's first in line. He says, Jesus, my daughter's about to die. She's a little girl. She's 12 years old. Guy, You're my only hope. Will you just come save her, heal her, cure her? He says, sure, I'll go. And he goes. And then he gets distracted by this woman who's been sick for a long time. She's not at, she's not at death's door. And yet, in the meantime, as he interacts with this woman... Jairus' daughter dies. I mean, you just got to ask, what, what has Jesus done here? What are the implications to what Jesus has done in this story? 
What he's done is not only surprising, and it is surprising as you read the story. It's not only surprising, it's also criminal. It's malpractice, right? Any, any doctor in any emergency room in any city in the United States who, who would forget about the 12-year-old girl who was about to die to address the concerns of a woman who had been sick for 12 years and the girl died, he or she would have their license revoked. They would be sued. Can you, can you imagine the ache in this man's heart? In this mother's heart? Can you imagine how betrayed you'd feel by Jesus? Doesn't Jesus know that my issue is important right now? It seems like he doesn't, right? You, we, I mean, you, you can't imagine their pain or their frustration or their anger or their confusion or their sadness unless you've lost a child. And I know there are some here who have. For those who've lost a child, you can relate. This is about as dark as it gets. This little girl died in their home. At this point in the story, Jesus just seems so irresponsible, doesn't he? He seems reckless. He seems, he seems careless. And maybe even to Jairus and to Jairus' wife, heartless. Why treat a woman who's been suffering with the same thing for 12 years, ignore this young girl who's about to die? Why, God, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't to us, right? It seems cruel to us. It doesn't make any sense to us. It seems like for Jairus and his wife, at this point, all hope is lost. Jairus felt ignored. He felt dismissed. And now he is mourning for his daughter. Do you ever feel like Jesus is ignoring you? Do you ever feel like he can't hear you, that he doesn't respond to you in the way that you're asking you ever feel alone in your pain and kind of wonder, God, why? I see these things happening all around me, but God, what about this thing that's happening in my life right now? God, it's overwhelming. It's urgent. I got some bad news for you, church. Jesus' priorities are not always your priorities. They're just not. And, and Jesus' time frame rarely syncs with our time frame and expectations. Anybody ever experienced that? Jesus' patience tries our patience. It seems like recklessness. And yet in Christ, our patience and our trust and our faith are rewarded. That's how the story unfolds in verse 49. It says, while he, he was still speaking, someone came up. He says, uh, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. I know it, I know it seems like right now everything is about as bad as it could get. But don't be afraid. B believe and be well. 
And Jesus went. He went to the house, right? And they were there. They were mourning. They were weeping. This girl had, in fact, died. And Jesus said, um, I, I'm going to, don't weep. She's not dead. She's asleep. And what do they do? They laugh. It's a joke, right? She's dead. They know she's dead. And I think this is how many of us would respond, too. It feels like the joke is on us sometimes. When, when we suffer with the pain, when we suffer with the confusion, I think this is how many of us would respond. Many of us have responded this way. S some of us suffer from terminal disease. Some of us endure the rebellion of our children. Some children endure the abuse and the neglect from their parents. Some have lost a spouse or a child or a dear friend. Maybe for some it just feels like you've lost everything. What is Jesus delaying in your life right now? Because there's probably something that you feel like you need. There's maybe even something that you've been asking for, maybe even pleading for, maybe even something that feels very, very urgent and you're desperate for. What is Jesus delaying in your life right now? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? What does it mean for you to have to wait for a while? In the Psalms, it says in chapter 27, wait for the Lord and be strong. Not many of us are good at that, right? So the instruction, we want the instruction to be, okay, uh, Justin, if you just do this and this and this thing, that, then it's going to be okay, you're going to work it out. But what's the instruction here? Wait. Just wait. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's the instruction. In the Gospel of Mark, he begins to tell this story. He says he put, all, he put all of them outside. Jesus took the child's father and mother and those who were with them. He went into where this little girl was, and he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kumai, which is Aramaic. It means little girl. I say to you, get up. And of course, immediately this little girl gets up. And she begins walking, she's 12 years old, and she's immediately overcome with amazement. The, the end is never the end with Jesus. What may feel like the end for you, what may feel like you can't, you, you don't know which way is up. Jesus is faithful. This story teaches us not only about Jesus' patience and how his timing works, it also teaches us about his power. It's interesting to see how he relates to these two people. We see, first of all, that Jesus' power, it's, it's demanding. He's demanding a great deal from these folks, isn't he? So with the woman, <clears throat> he says, who, who touched my garment, right? The, the, woman wanted, the, the woman wanted the blessing from Jesus. She wanted to be healed, and then she wanted to leave. That's what she wanted. She didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be exposed for who she was. She didn't want to be exposed for what she was doing and contaminating this whole crowd. And then what does Jesus do? He says, someone touch me. Who was it? Let's see her. Let's see her. 
Do you see how demanding that must have been for this woman? Now, why would he call her out on something like that? Why not let her slip away, completely ignored? I think in some ways this is validating when Jesus calls her out. He says, you're not a nobody anymore. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. You're healed. She's been publicly restored now. She didn't just walk away. She didn't just get what she came for and leave. She's been completely restored. And what about Jairus? Think about how demanding Jesus was to Jairus. What he was requiring of Jairus was that he wait. And I'll tell you what, if you've got a a 12-year-old girl dying in the hospital room, you don't want to wait. You you want action, right? My my daughter will be 12 years old on Wednesday. And I I can just put myself in that position to think of her in our house or in a hospital room about to die. I cannot handle Jesus saying to me, I've got something else I need to deal with. It doesn't seem that important. It probably could wait, but I'm going to deal with it first. He makes Jairus wait. He, Jairus had to ache. Jairus had to experience this pain. But he got so much more than he bargained for, didn't he? He got so much more than he bargained for. Jesus demanded a great deal from his followers. He demanded a great deal from his disciples. He demanded a great deal uh, from this woman and from Jairus. Um, but he got to experience the resurrection. He got to experience something completely New. Jesus' power is not only demanding, it's also intimate. It's interesting that the word touch is mentioned over and over and over again in this passage. And especially in a passage where it makes clear that anyone who is being touched will be unclean. This woman touches Jesus. Jesus touches this little girl who's dead on the table. It would have contaminated him and anybody else who would have touched. And yet Jesus' power is very intimate. Touch means intimacy. Touch means proximity. Touch means relationship. Touch means connection. And what does Jesus say to this woman, daughter? Your faith has made you well. What does he say to this little girl? He says, literally, the translation is, little lamb. Sweet little lamb, get up. You're all right. You see how intimate his power is here? His power is also overwhelming. This woman is is healed, her life has changed, her relationships have changed, her job situation has changed, her worship now has changed, she could have a family, she could share a meal with someone, she could share a bed with someone. Everything about her life is now changed in an instant. All she wanted was a magic trick. And yet she got full redemption, social, spiritual, physical redemption. And what about Jairus? He came for a healing, and what did he get? He got a resurrection. Some of us, it's not that we want too little. It's not that we want too much. It's that we want too little. Or not that we believe too much. We believe too little. God says, I can, I can take this terrible mess that you're in, this confusion, this pain, this darkness, and I can transform it into something you wouldn't even know to ask for. 
Maybe all you want for Jesus is to sort out your most recent mess. But maybe Jesus has something more in store for you. Maybe all you want is a healing, but Jesus has a resurrection for you. What have you come for? What have you come for this morning? Do you trust him? God's power is real. God's power is demanding. It's intimate. It's overwhelming. Jairus here got a resurrection, but that's not a guarantee. Sometimes kids die. Sometimes your spouse dies. In fact, it's nearly guaranteed for all of us. There's this story uh, from Martin Luther. Martin Luther had this 14-year-old daughter, uh, and she got sick with the plague. And she was in her room dying, 14-year-old girl. And, and Martin Luther was just pleading and praying for God to heal her, for God to restore her, for God to cure her. And then in the end, after suffering a tremendous amount, this little girl died. His daughter, his 14-year-old daughter. And the story goes, as, the, as, the, as they took her body away to be buried, the carpenter laid her in the coffin and began to nail in the top of the coffin and Martin Luther said, nail away, she'll rise again. There is life beyond this place. Do you trust him? Will you cling to him? Will you believe when all seems lost? Because that's when it really matters, right? That's when you can tell what you're made of. That's when, what you can, that's when you can tell what your faith and belief is is made of. This, this woman suffered with a problem of blood. This young girl was dead. Both were unclean. And each had the power to, transform their, to, to transfer their uncleanness to anyone who would touch them. This was the law. This was the reality of Jewish religious custom. Jesus knew that, and he touched them anyway. He touched them anyway. Jesus took their uncleanness upon himself. Just like he takes our uncleanness upon himself. And he not only takes their uncleanness, he not only takes our uncleanness, but what does the scripture say? He gave them his power. Right? That's what he said. My, my power has gone out from me, right? So not only did he contaminate himself by entering into these girls' worlds, he then gave him his power. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you trust him this morning? What did you come here for? I'll ask you, I'll ask you to consider that, and I'm going to say a prayer for us.